Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. this morning is from Colossians uh, chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him all thing, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and through his understanding stretched out the heavens. And God looked at what he had made and it was good. God spoke, let us make man in our own image, reflecting our nature. So they will be responsible for the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every animal that walks the face of the earth. And God blessed them. Then came the fall. Humankind broken because of sin, at odds with the Creator and His creation. Yet God so loved the world, He sent His only Son through Him to reconcile Himself to all things making peace by the blood of the cross. There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation, for the Father has employed the same agent for both works. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages has now been revealed to His saints. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Are we to stand by idly, casual spectators of our Lord's great works? Or will we rise up as Christ's hands and feet proclaiming the good news to all his creation. For the creation waits with longing for the revealing of the children of God in hopes that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Well, good morning, Antioch. <clears throat> my name is Rick. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning. 
A couple of weeks ago, we began a series on the New Testament epistle of Colossians, and we come today to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I encourage you to open your Bible or your app to that spot. I'll, I'll probably bring in a lot of other scriptures, but most of those will be up on the screen, so you can just camp here in this passage. The video, which uh, complements what I have to say, share with you this morning, was produced four or five years ago by my son, Nate Gerhardt. Uh, as we prepared to host a weekend uh, workshop and retreat that took this passage as its theme. Uh, we here at Antioch, in fact, have come to understand this particular passage as perhaps the clearest, most beautiful articulation of what it is God is up to in the world. Uh, and so central to our understanding of the specific calling of Christ upon us, the local body that is Antioch Church, uh, so it really is a, a great honor and a privilege for me to be able to dive into this passage with you today. So the letter to the Colossian church serves in part as a warning against false teaching. And New Testament scholars believe that uh, part of that false teaching was an early form of what would eventually come to be known as Gnosticism. Um, and Gnosticism was characterized by a radical form of dualism that came not from Judaism or from the Bible, but from Greek thought. And this dualism rightly acknowledges uh, that there are both material or physical and immaterial, including spiritual aspects of the world in which we all live. But Gnosticism wrongly uh, emphasized the distinction between the material and the physical, rather than seeing their tight union for instance, in human beings and other living things. And Gnosticism also claimed, uh, wrongly and unbiblically, that the material world is bad and that only the immaterial and spiritual world is of lasting value. So this epistle and, and this passage are critically relevant for us today because the church in America still is infected with a form of Gnosticism, whereby we overemphasize the spiritual dimension and undervalue the physical aspects, both of humanity and the rest of creation. So attention to the claims of this passage uh, can serve as a much needed corrective for us today, just as it did for the early church in Colossae. In the early church, Gnosticism uh, led to one or both of two opposite behavioral extremes. Um, on the one hand was personally denying oneself the enjoyment of the physical aspects of God's good world. And this took the form of either asceticism or legalism, uh, both of which Paul calls out and warns against in chapter two of this letter. Now we today are not greatly tempted to become hermits or monks, uh, or even to, to deny ourselves much of the good, good things in the world God has made. But uh, legalism, whereby we seek to deny others some of those good things in the name of religion, is still alive and well in, in the evangelical church. Uh, in my own experience, it was handed down to me as, as the idea that uh, Christian men are those who don't drink or smoke or kiss girls that do. On the other hand, Gnostic, Gnosticism also led to immorality and debauchery. The idea was that uh, if material things are hopelessly fallen, then things like what we eat and drink and where we sleep really don't matter at all since it's only the soul that can be saved. And Paul addresses this false idea in chapter three. 
So it's partly to correct this early form of Gnosticism that Colossians was written. And the passage we're looking at today is a succinct poetic summary of where Paul and the Holy Spirit stand on this issue. Some within the church at Colossae had an overly narrow understanding of God's purposes in the world. And likewise, some of us in the church today have an insufficient and narrow understanding of those purposes. This passage should serve to expand our appreciation of the broader scope of what Christ is trying to accomplish. So with that introduction, would you uh, pray with me? Father, in our desire to faithfully follow our Lord Jesus, in whose name we come to you this morning, we desire to know what it is you are seeking to accomplish in our world. May your Holy Spirit guide us in these next few minutes to truth regarding your purposes and our place in those purposes. Amen. So most New Testament scholars uh, believe that this section, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is an early Christian creed. On that view, when Paul penned or had Timothy pen these words, they were not original with him. Instead, for the purposes of correcting the seeds of, false er of error among some of the believers at Colossae, Paul and the Holy Spirit selected and inserted a hymn or poem that was already being used in the early church when, when believers got together in corporate worship to remind themselves of the central aspects of the great story into which they had become participants. So as a creed, these verses can reasonably be extracted and meditated upon by themselves and even memorized. Uh, we've been using this passage as our prayer of confession for the past several weeks. So you've already said it once and then heard Pat read it as well. And I would strongly recommend that each of you try to take the time to memorize it at some point in the coming weeks. Many are the cases in which extracting scripture from its context can lead to error, to missing the point, or even to an understanding that's quite different from what the passage really says. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a powerful truth, and powerful especially to the evangelical church. But if we stop there at verse 9, as is often done by evangelicals determined to affirm salvation by grace over against the perceived salvation by works of the Catholic Church, we, we may end up thinking that God has no interest in what we do, but only in what we believe, and that the end goal of Christ's work on the cross is our own personal salvation and eternal security. But the very next verse reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This tells us that God does care about what we do and that in fact the goal of our own personal salvation is in order that we would then be able to participate by doing the good works God has prepared for us in his larger purposes, the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Let's look briefly at another passage that's often taken out of context, one that may contribute to a Gnostic understanding in our day. If I were to ask which scripture uh, encapsulates the gospel most clearly, uh, which, which passage of scripture tells us why the Messiah came to earth, most evangelicals would unhesitatingly say John 3.16. 
Now this verse is very much anthropocentric, that is, it specifically addresses humanity and its salvation. But it is popular to reduce or confine the gospel to that part of it and to claim that God's purposes are all about human salvation. Um, the Gnosticism comes in in at least two ways, both by narrowing the objects of redemption to humanity alone and by locating the promise eternal life as taking place in heaven, a view that makes the rest of creation unnecessary and superfluous to what God is accomplishing. But Jesus' words here are not an answer to the big question of what all are God's purposes, but instead to the more, more focused question posed to him by Nicodemus the Pharisee of how is it that people can enter into God's purposes and kingdom. The answer to the bigger question, not asked by Nicodemus, is found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If we want to know today what God is up to in the world, why he created the world in the first place, uh, why he sent his son to become human and die on a Roman cross, how we as Christ followers should view the world around us and how we should behave in it, there's no better place to start than Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So let's uh, look at it again together. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the be beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, there's some great stuff here. And unfortunately, I won't have time to dissect it line by line. Fortunately, most of it is pretty self-explanatory. This passage reminds us that Jesus is fully God. That Jesus is the visible member of the Godhead who shows us the character of the invisible members, the Father and the Holy Spirit. It tells us that Jesus created everything, that Jesus sustains everything moment by moment. Jesus leads the church. Jesus is the central figure, the hero, as it were, of the whole story of the world in which we all live. All this and much more is affirmed in this passage. But I want to spend most of our time unpacking the last verse, verse 20, because it has the power to broaden our understanding of the mission of Christ and the purpose of his incarnation, death, and resurrection. At Antioch, we have adopted a motto that reminds us of what God is up to in and through us. And that motto, the reconciliation of all things, comes directly from verse 20 of this early church creed. Now, the comprehensive nature of the redemption accomplished at the cross is clearly seen by the re repetition and emphasis of the words all things, which translate the Greek words ta panta, found throughout this creed. There can be no doubt, no denying that the all things that in verse 20 are the object of the reconciliation begun at the cross are the same all things that are created by Christ in verse 16 and that are sustained by him in verse 17. In short, all of creation. So do you, think, do you see that there are two different gospels available to us today? 
two different understandings of God's purposes. On the one hand is a Gnostic gospel that says that God has no future plans for the physical part of humans or for other living things or the rest of creation, but cares only about saving human souls for another destination in time. Evangelicals have, in the last several decades, embraced this false gospel with a vengeance. But according to the true and historical gospel, God's plan of redemption is much bigger than that. It encompasses all of his creation, the immaterial and the material. And while the passage before us is arguably the clearest, most beautiful summary of the all-inclusive nature of God's plans, the same idea is found on the very first page and the very last page of the Bible and runs across all of the pages in between. Let me first just mention a few other New Testament passages that say the same thing a little differently. You can later go to these and see for yourself. In Acts 3, the saving activity of God is restoration, and the object of that salvation is, again, all things, everything. In Ephesians 1, salvation involves uniting or bringing together, and the referent is all things in heaven and on earth. In 2 Peter 3, a passage that, because of its catastrophic imagery of God's judgment on evil, is often misused to make the opposite point, Salvation involves exposing or laying bare the earth and the works in it for the purpose of purification and also involves renewal or recreation, again, of all heaven and earth. And in Romans 8, 19 through 23, the saving activity of God is likewise twofold. First is the liberation or setting free from bondage, which will happen to the creation itself. Then there's also a redemption that is applied to our bodies. In all of these passages, salvation is restorative. God is repairing what went wrong with creation. And in all of these, that restoration is comprehensive and holistic. It applies to all things in heaven and on earth. So brothers and sisters, the whole story of the Bible is one of creation and redemption inextricably intertwined. We cannot accurately talk about creation without recognizing that it is the object of God's great redemptive work. And we cannot accurately talk about God's redemptive work without acknowledging that it applies to all of creation. Whereas the modern Gnosticism sees creation as merely the temporary stage set or scenery in which the redemption of human souls takes place, the biblical narrative has all of creation which includes human beings, body and soul, as the focus and referent, the object of God's great redemptive work. I guess it'd be worthwhile at this point to to take a moment to correct another error that plays into our modern Gnosticism. The Bible uses the word soul quite frequently, but almost invariably when it does so, by reference to the deepest part of persons, it, it means the entire person not just the immaterial part, not to distinguish or separate the immaterial portion from the rest of the human. I guess the simplest analogy I could give you is uh, is this. When someone in authority, say your football coach, says, hey, get your butt over here, we all rightly recognize that he wants more than just our butt. He wants our whole body and our attention, our mind. In the same way, when the Bible tells us, for example, that 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. It simply means 3,000 people. 
It doesn't mean 3,000 disembodied uh, souls had become disciples. So where Gnosticism, even in our day, would seek to separate the soul from the rest of the person, the Bible's usage of that term simply doesn't work that way. So God's master plan is given on the very first page of Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which should be familiar to you and, and which is up on the screen. <clears throat> it tells us that God's original purpose in bringing into being a very good creation was so that humankind could reign with him in governing and caring for that creation. Of course, the rest of the Bible goes on to, to show how humanity rebelled and fell into sin and how the resulting brokenness affected all of creation. God himself intervened to redeem humanity and creation and his original purpose is being fulfilled and will be uh, fulfilled when Christ returns. Again, what was his original purpose? that humankind would reign with God in governing and caring for his creation. So let's look at the other end of the biblical narrative. The fulfillment of God's master plan is described throughout Revelation, <clears throat> but especially in the last two chapters, which describe the future return from heaven to earth of Jesus the King. Excuse me. At that time, according to Revelation 21.3, behold, the dwelling place of God will be with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is, at the end of this age, God's throne will no longer be in heaven, but in the new Jerusalem. Gathered with him will be, according to Revelation 5.9, people from every tribe and language and people and nation and, Revelation 5.13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. All created things will participate in God's eternal kingdom. And these will be saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. The redemption creation narrative will find its ultimate reconciliation. Revelation 22.3 says that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, the new Jerusalem, and his servants will worship him. That is, the curse upon creation of Genesis 3 will be undone entirely, and God's purposes for creation will carry forward throughout eternity. Revelation 11:15, which was taken into uh, Handel's Messiah, declares that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But the picture of eternity future is not one in which the redeemed of the Lord do nothing but worship. Rather, they will have been made, according to Revelation 5.10, a kingdom of priests to our God, who will reign forever and ever with him, Revelation 22.5. So for whom will God's redeemed people be priests? Over whom will we reign in eternity? It can't be other people, since everybody present will be redeemed priests and co-regents with God. That would be like the absurd town in which everyone makes their living solely by doing each other's laundry. No, in eternity future, our priesthood will be, as it was designed from the beginning, over the rest of God's redeemed creation. Our Lord himself addressed his master plan when the disciples asked him to pray, how to pray. He said, Father in heaven, may your kingdom come on earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This understanding of God's master plan as applying to all of creation also explains why when speaking of the blessings promised to God's people in the Beatitudes portion of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could interchangeably use the ideas of entering into God's kingdom and inheriting the earth. It is because the eternal destination of God's people and of the rest of God's good creation is right here on earth. In several places, scripture refers to that eternal destination as the new creation or the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 21.1, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the question is, does this passage and do similar passages in Isaiah 65 and 66 and in 2 Peter 3, do they teach the destruction of creation followed by its replacement? And the answer is no. I think the clearest way to show you that is to point out that the exact same terminology is found in 2 Corinthians 5 in reference to something that has already taken place in each one of us. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. In both cases, with regard to people in 2 Corinthians 5 and creation in Revelation 21, what is described is not destruction followed by replacement, but transformation. In both cases, that transformation is radical as significant purification has to take place. But scripture assumes throughout a parallel between the redemption of human persons and the redemption of the non-human world. Okay? So, so far I've made some very positive statements about the comprehensive nature, as described in Colossians 1, of God's plan of redemption. But if the master plan of God involves the restoration for all eternity of all of God's good creation, if our destiny is to reign with him in creation, then there would seem to be an elephant in the sanctuary, as it were. Uh, and I think now would be a good time to address that elephant with a negative statement. Uh, this will be a little more challenging to you, not because what I'm about to say is at odds with scripture or even at odds with the historical creeds of the early church, but because it is at odds with a good deal of church and cultural tradition. Our eternal destination is not heaven. Indeed, nowhere in scripture does it say that believers will go to heaven either at death or at the end of the age when Christ comes back to earth to establish his eternal kingdom. The belief that Christians will go to heaven owes more to Dante and other medieval artists and literature uh, writers than it does to the Bible. To be sure, this Gnostic belief has infiltrated and has for a long time been found throughout our culture, both within the church and outside of it. For example, in Away in the Manger, we sing, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. And many evangelicals joyfully sing songs like, I'll fly away, and, and I could go on and on and on. In the non-church culture, the most popular rock song of all time is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. And a wide range of songs, movies, and books promote the idea and assumes that Christianity entails belief in heaven as our destination, a claim that is nowhere actually stated in the Bible. So take that as a challenge. Like the Bereans who were commended for their diligence in this regard, study the scriptures for yourself. You will find in them hundreds of great promises for those who are in Christ, 
promises of life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, resurrection bodies in the new creation, but nowhere will you find the explicit statement of ever going to heaven. In fact, where Jesus most directly talks about this issue, what he tells his disciples repeatedly is, where I am going, you cannot come, in, in John 7 and John 8. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, the baptizer draws the contrast between himself and the rest of humanity and Jesus, saying, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. We brothers and sisters belong to the earth. What you will find is numerous references to present heavenly realities that apply to us and which cause us to wrongly infer that we go to heaven to receive them. For example, in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. In John 14, Jesus is preparing a place for us. In 1 Peter 3, salvation and an inheritance are kept for us in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, our resurrection bodies are being prepared in heaven. And in 2 Timothy 4, our crown of righteousness is being prepared for Paul and for all who await Christ's return. But the clear pattern in all of these references is that good things are now being prepared for Christ's followers. And each of those good things will be revealed and realized, not in heaven, but in the new creation when Christ returns to earth bringing those rewards with him. Nowhere in the Gospels, in Romans, or Revelation, or indeed anywhere in Scripture, is there any statement telling believers that they will go to heaven. But let me also deal with another class of biblical statements that have caused Christians to think of heaven as a destination. And we see an example of it in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on, on earth. This and many very similar New Testament passages are not saying that we are uh, to pretend that we're living bodily lives in heaven and quit living as earthlings. Rather, they are contrasting lives lived according to the fallen systems of this broken world with lives lived in accordance with the values of Christ's kingdom, which is yet to come to earth. Right now, we live as ambassadors of that kingdom in a world that is not yet fully redeemed. But the future fulfillment of Christ's kingdom is not in heaven, but here on earth. And the very following verses of that same passage ground the whole conversation in the hope of Christ's return. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In more recent church history, this Gnostic focus on heaven has been aided and abetted by a bad bit of thinking known as rapture theology, uh, a misinterpretation that didn't arise until the 19th century. <clears throat> this doctrine received a huge boost beginning in the 1970s, uh, with the false prophecy contained in Hal Lindsey's best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And then again in the 1990s, <clears throat> with a series of best-selling fictional books, the Left Behind series. Now, both Pete and I have talked in the past about the correct interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the primary passage from which this false doctrine comes. And I won't take the time to do that again here. But I do want to address another couple of supposed rapture passages, <clears throat> which record a teaching of Jesus found 
in both Matthew 24 and Luke 17. Jesus is talking with his disciples about the time when he will return to earth after having ascended. And he says at that time, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. And as I hope most of you know, according to rapture theology, we should do our very best to be certain that we're not among those that are left behind. But the ironic thing is that careful attention to the context here shows that the message is just the opposite. Jesus introduces this teaching by analogy to the flood of Noah's day. The unrighteous people of that day were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So those taken are the unrighteous, and the taking away, like the sweeping away during the flood of Noah, will be to judgment. And this is made clear in Luke's version of this same teaching. In Luke 17, 37, the disciples ask, Where, Lord? Where will they be taken? Jesus said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. <laughs> Now, unless, like me, you make a living out of studying birds of prey, the gathering of vultures is not a picture of heaven, but a picture of death and judgment. So just as in the days of Noah, in the day when the Lord returns to earth, the righteous will remain here on earth. That is, if Christ comes back while we're still living, we want to be left behind, along with all the rest of God's people and with the creation that Christ died to reconcile. So what are some of the important implications for us as followers of Christ of this correct understanding of God's purposes described in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 over against the Gnostic version that has been given to many of us? Let me just offer three. First, I want to return to our passage and note this. In this clear description of the supremacy and centrality of Christ to the eternal purposes of God in creation and redemption, we also find this line in the middle, and he is the head of the body, the church. If the main point of this creed is that it is Christ himself who is qualified and designated and able to complete the planned and promised purposes of God in reconciling and redeeming not just sinful people, but all created things, why this mention of the church? It is because the church is designed and intended to play a role of partnering with or being used by the Lord in this grand work of reconciliation. This is more clearly laid out by the same Paul as he writes to the believers at Corinth, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And this is our understanding here at Antioch of, of what the church is to be about. This is why we have ministry spotlights uh, every fourth week of, of service. Because we're, we're, we're called by God to be about reconciliation. Listen, none of what I'm sharing today, none of what Paul is addressing to the Colossians, in any way undermines the importance and centrality of our sharing with other people that God loves them that Jesus died on the cross to save them and that they have an eternal relationship with God himself to look forward to if they understand that aright. 
purpose is not to undermine that. that. That stuff's critically important. It's to broaden our understanding of what it is God accomplished at the cross of Christ. So second, the recognition that God's purposes in the reconciliation of all things is the reconciliation of all things grounds for us an ongoing commitment to justice, poverty relief, ethnic reconciliation, peace, and so on. The modern Gnostic gospel leads to the belief among many evangelicals that caring about the physical welfare of people is like polishing the brass handrails on a sinking Titanic. But the biblical theology of creation, redemption, inextricably intertwined aligns us with Christ's own mission of feeding the poor, healing the sick, caring for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, and setting the captive free. Throughout Western history, it has been the church, it has been disciples of Christ that have spread throughout the world the message that Christ is restoring everything and putting hands and feet to that message have established hospitals, orphanages, schools and universities, reformed prison systems, founded modern science and created democracies. It is only in the last couple of centuries that a new Gnosticism has derailed much of the church from its historical role at the forefront of Christ's work of the reconciliation of all things. Third, let me briefly mention our relationship to the rest of creation and thereby come back full circle to the video. Modern Gnostic Christianity, at least in America, <laughs> embraces the radical hypocrisy of acknowledging the creator while being apathetic to or denying the value of his creation. On the other hand, our unbelieving friends and neighbors who deny the existence of God tend to value the world in which we believe, but their best stewardship of it is done with very little hope and often with bitterness and anger. As biblically informed followers of Christ, we rightly care for creation, hopeful in the certainty that the world in which we live is the very creation that Christ is redeeming and in whose reconciliation he has asked us to partner with him. So whether we're skiing at Tumalo Mountain, canoeing on Hosmer Lake, planting riparian shrubs along the Big Muddy, or gardening or feeding birds in our own backyards, we can enjoy and care for God's very good creation, secure in the knowledge that Christ intends for its brokenness to be healed along with our own brokenness. To put it simply, it is followers of Christ who should be the leading voices and activists with regard to what the world calls the environment, but we recognize rightly as God's creation. There's a sense in which Hollywood sometimes uh, more accurately portrays the biblical story than much of the church does. The many superhero model movies that are being made these days, which take their characters and plots out of the comic books written in the 1930s and 1940s, they recognize that human evil has global and even cosmic consequences. Each superhero movie involves one or more saviors, and these are either a human with extraordinary powers or someone from outside our solar system, right? As C.S. Lewis wrote about ancient mythology, I think the appeal of this familiar superhero narrative to people today, regardless of their religious affiliation, is that it is a minor reflection of the one true, real, big story of the world in which we all live. In that very true story, the Savior, 
of humanity, of earth, and of all the universe, and the one who comes to set things right by conquering evil for all eternity, is both and at the same time an extraordinary human and a visitor from outside the solar system, the God-man, Jesus Christ. As we come to his table this morning to experience afresh his grace upon us, let me just point out that the communion elements, the bread and the wine, are themselves a powerful refutation of Gnosticism. These very material things, which represent for us the very physical body and blood of the Savior, are not intended to remind us of spiritual things that have no continuity with the physical realities of our earthly human condition. Instead, the redemption to which communion draws us, as Colossians 1, 15 through 20 beautifully reminds us, is earthly, physical, holistic, and comprehensive, applying to all of creation. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we uh, acknowledge you as the creator and sustainer of all things. We acknowledge you as our redeemer. And we ask that you would help us to see where you are at work reconciling all things to yourself today and how we might be your agents of reconciliation this day, this week, this year. Amen.